You are now listening to Mostly Mistakes. Here we are. Another episode of Mostly Mistakes. You guys, I'm pumped. I'm pumped for today's guest. We have a dear friend of mine, Boomer Cruz, award-winning, world-class copywriter. Boomer's actually, he's won some of the biggest international copywriting awards. He's worked with some pretty well-known celebs too. He's worked with Steph Curry. He's worked with Clay Matthews. He's worked with Russell Wilson. Boomer, thank you for being a guest today. Perfect. Thank you guys. Happy to be here. Boomer, let's jump right into it. So first segment we have is called Failing Forward. And just to break down this segment a little bit, it's pretty much you see in corporate America a, a lot. People do a bad job in their job and continue to progress in their career. They make a lot of mistakes, but they keep moving forward and doing well. So that's the concept behind this. So first question I want to kick you off with is why do you think failure is important? Failure is not only important, I think it's essential because really you start to fail when you get outside of your comfort zone and outside of your comfort zone is the only place where growth exists. So if you're not failing, then you're not trying something new and you're by definition, you're not growing. So that's why I think it's not only important, but it's actually essential if you want to like advance your career, advance your skills, advance your income. You got to make mistakes for that to happen. Most definitely. What do you think is the most important aspect of failing? I would say fail bigger, like fail bigger, because the more that you fail, the more that you learn. Like it's the, the bigger the L, the bigger the lesson really is what is what it comes down to. So that's why it's very, very important to just go for it. Yeah, I think it's pretty much summed up in the bigger the L, the bigger the lesson. That's a bar. Go quote. quote. The bigger the L, the bigger the lesson. Love that. All right. So we're going to take it back. We're going to look into Little Boomer's life. And I want you to talk about a mistake that you made really early in life. This could be like college, high school. It could be like from sports, anywhere that stuck with you and you kept and you refer back to in your professional career? The first thing that came into my head was when I was in middle school and I was on the middle school basketball team. I was good at basketball, but I went through a period where I wasn't starting. Like I wasn't in the starting, I wasn't the starting point guard anymore. After every game, I would come home and I, in the car, like I would be complaining to my mom. I'd be like, why don't they like start me? I don't get it. Like, you know, I make my shot, everything I was thought I was doing. I was like, why is he doing that? Like, that, I, I, I was blaming. I kept blaming other people for like my circumstances. And after a while, my mom let me vent, you know, and kind of just get it all out. And then after a while, my mom said, you know, you want, you want to play more, right? I said, yeah. And she said, you want to know how you're going to play more? And I said, I don't know how, you know, how, like, I thought, you know, it was like, she was going to talk to the coach or like, I thought she was going to help me, you know? And she said, play better. And she said, no, actually don't play better. Play so good. In fact, that it is an absolute joke that you're on the bench. That was when the mirror got put in front of me. And it was like, you want your circumstances to change, change it. It's on you. It's on me to change my circumstances. So like I learned a firm lesson in responsibility right there and accountability. And what could I do differently? Like it was the first question. Now I asked myself is, okay, what could I do differently? What could I have done differently in that situation? That's my first question. So I really like, I learned that concept in that instance when I was in middle school. Man, that's heat and that's so valuable. You learned that early 
No pun intended, people always play the blame game. People don't look inward first. And a lot of times you can solve a lot of the problems by looking inward first versus like pointing fingers and saying like, ah, this coach sucks. Or, you know, the teammates don't like me. And a lot of stuff will change that way. And to add to that, that's how you put yourself in the driver's seat versus uh, feeling like the victim, feeling like you're a victim to the circumstances around you. And that's like, that's so empowering. Like, that's so empowering when you just go through the trials and tribulations of life beyond professional. Now we're talking just life in general, really understanding your effect on the situation just literally is, a, is an empowerment position instead of like a victim mentality. 100%. And the fact that you learn that very early in life is phenomenal because a lot of people don't learn that or still haven't learned that lesson. So Exactly. So our next section, boom, interviewing advice. So Dave and I, we got to put our, our recruiter hats on. If you can, going back to you interviewing candidates, right? You're the interviewer. What are the most common pitfalls of potential candidates that you've interviewed? I think the most common pitfall that I see with potential candidates and this is something that I learned myself too when I was interviewing, is like appearing like you know everything. There's two things that happen with that. First of all, like for me, I want to hire people that are curious, especially like early on in your career, if you're a junior copywriter, or you're a junior creative or whatever. I'm just going to talk about the field that I'm in, like junior creative, mid-level creative. Like there's still a lot for you to learn. Like you only got a couple years under your belt. Like don't really know much about this business yet. And like to have the self-awareness, to have the humbleness, to make that clear that this person knows where they're at in their career and they know they got a lot to learn ahead and they're really excited about that part. You know, if they come in and they have this attitude that they know everything or that their last experience was like the end all be all, that's just a turnoff. That's going to turn any hiring manager off. Like nobody wants to work with a know-it-all, just point blank period. And also too, like it shows a lack of self-awareness and any kind of lack of self-awareness is going to lead to other issues. It's going to manifest in other ways when you, if you do hire that person, like it's going to manifest in other ways. Those are the pitfalls that I, I see. And by the way, I learned this because that was a pitfall on my end when I went into interviews. Like I tried to be the fugazi and try to act like I knew because I thought I would get the job if I knew more, if I pretended like I was bigger than I was, but that wasn't the case. So I would say that's a big pitfall. We see that all the time. I think people pretend that they know more and they get called out. You'll get called out 10 out of 10 times. Dave can attest to this too, is if you have something in your resume, it's fair game. And your interviewer will dive into it and really test like, how well do you know this topic? How well do you know this subject? On the flip side of that, Boomer, what are the most common themes of success for strong candidates? I already kind of touched on it. I mean, but I will say like, the one thing that I'm like, okay, this person could work for us is curiosity. Like, especially with junior copywriters and junior creatives, people just starting out, actually, let me just widen this. People starting out in a career or just like you got a couple of years under your belt, like curiosity does two things. One, it shows that you actually care about other people. You actually are curious of other people. And the people who are actually curious, they learn a lot faster. They learn a lot faster because... When you think you know everything or when you think you, you know, when you think you don't really need to learn much, you don't really ask questions. So therefore you don't really, you don't really get answers. You don't really get new answers. You're not really open to new perspectives or you're not really open to a different process or a different way of thinking. So like curiosity is just, it tells you a lot about a person and it tells you a lot about how fast and how quickly they'll develop. You had mentioned 
you're most interested in people that sound interested, not people yeah. that are trying to sound interesting when they interview. Exactly. And that's another GOAT quote. Yeah. It goes along the same lines as curiosity, but that's a great way to package it up. Be freaking interested. And that makes you interesting. We were talking about like so many people try to be fugazis and like they just think like the more that they can say about themselves the more cool they are so the more interesting they are so the more they're going to want to be hired and that's just not the case like what actually makes us interesting are actually the things that probably would be seen as like a negative thing almost sometimes because that kind of makes us unique in a way not negative i'll say but like unique characteristics actually make us that's what makes us pretty interesting too be interested curious yeah, I want to go back to something you said about not going into interviews, acting like you know it all, right? Like, don't go into an interview capping. The winning strategy is to be yourself. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you come into that interview and you're fronting or you're being fugazi or you're capping, they're going to find out about it when they hire you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're not going to be able to run from it or hide from it. Also, you know, if you're in that interview and you're being yourself, you know, it should help with your confidence because you're actually, you know, confident in what you're talking about versus like you're teetering a little bit, you know, back and forth and your interviewer, you know, starts to pick up on things that you are saying that that aren't accurate or just aren't true. So yeah. Winning strategy, be yourself, be confident in what you know and be aware of those things that you don't know. Yeah. And you know what? I'm gonna add to that too, because uh, I think this is important. Sometimes people try to inflate themselves and inflate their resumes, inflate what they've done, like make themselves appear bigger than they are because they have this very, very simple core belief that makes them do this. And that belief is I am not enough. And you know what? It's okay to go to therapy. I just want to mm -hmm. affirm that for anybody who's listening, like I went to therapy. I know I spoke privately with John about therapy, like it's something that a lot of us men think is a weakness, and that's a huge misnomer. And we're missing a lot of opportunity for self-development when we don't just get our feelings out, when we don't really excavate what's going on inside of our heads. So when you don't feel like you're enough, then you're going to lie. You're going to cap. You're going to, oh, well, I did. Oh, well, what, what did you, did you hear about my, you know, because we think that these outside things are making us enough when really like just being ourselves, that's enough in itself. And sometimes you got to talk about that with somebody else to really like get that out. And so for us to bring awareness to what is motivating our certain actions, and that's one of them. So absolutely, man. Be true to yourself. Thank you for that. Boom. Last mm -hmm. question for you when it comes to interviewing, I need you to go back and tell me a little bit about your biggest fail as a candidate. Oh, God. I was pretty clear my biggest fail. <laughs> and it was actually my first interview I ever had. And so, I mean, it's coming off a win, like it's coming off a networking win, but then the interview was, I blew it. I completely blew it. So basically I would reach out to a bunch of people on LinkedIn, like just complimenting a bunch of people, you know, like on their, not a bunch of just random people, but like, I would basically see advertisements that were dope in the world. Like I would see a campaign that was really dope or whatever. And I would figure out who created the campaign. Then I would reach out to them and be like, yo, I just saw your campaign. Like, amazing way that you landed with that the tagline was so succinct beautiful like you know just amazing job peace boomer like i wouldn't introduce myself hey i'm boomer i'm a student i'm looking for i wouldn't do none of that like i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't do that like i would just i would just be like i'll just give love 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 right compliments that's all i could i felt like 
I felt like if I gave value, then I would give value back somehow. I don't, maybe not now, but at some point, you know? So anyway, I reached out to this one dude and <laughs> his campaign was your mom hates dead space two or three. I can't remember. Well, your mom hates dead space basically. And they won a bunch of awards for it, whatever. I found out who made it. I reached out to this dude. My message to him on LinkedIn was, dude, I fucking love your mom hates dead space three. Like hilarious. Peace. Boomer. That was my message to him. Then he responded. And this was when I was in school. Like I had nothing going. I didn't even have a portfolio at the time. I didn't even have work to show at the time. And no awards, no nothing. I had no stamps of approval, period. And so he was like, he emailed me. He hit me back in a couple of minutes. He was like, hey, thanks, man. Like, hey, you looking for a job? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, he was, and then he was just like, all right, cool. Come into, you know, the, the office da, 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 tomorrow at 12 noon. My first interview ever, right? So that night, I researched all the creative directors in the office. Like I researched their backgrounds. I knew all the work that they worked on. Some of them worked on Nike, Old Spice, you know, Zeus, like some dating sites. Like they had like interesting past experiences, but one in particular stood out to me. My idea was I'm going to go in and I'm going to hit them with the one liner. When I first meet them, like when I first meet whoever, I'm going to have like a one liner and just like get him to laugh. Like just, you know, you know, like in the movies where you hit him with the one line and like they're best friends after that. That was like my goal. Like that was my, <laughs> my aspiration for this. So a couple of them had some interesting past experiences, but none like one of them. One guy in particular, I won't say his name. I, I think I said it last. I, I won't say his name, but on his portfolio, it was public information that he was on this show called Saved by the Bell in the 90s. And he was an actor. He was like a, whatever, I guess he had a period where he acted or whatever. But his role on the show was like, I think he was like a personal trainer or something. He was being like really inappropriate with the women, like total dick to like the dudes. So I saw that and I was like, that's hilarious that he like still has this on his portfolio. Like, you know, I wonder if, you know, if I said something about this, you know, whatever. So anyway, I have a line in my head. I like figure out a line that I'm going to say when I meet this guy, I'm going to say the line, you know? So like I go to the agency the next day at noon, I'm sitting in the waiting room. I'm like rehearsing my line, literally like I'm just, I just wanted to get that right. Cause I know like writing copy, like the headline is like 80% of the success of an ad, you know, like what's the headline? What's the first thing that you, you know, and also a first impression too is super important, right? So anyway, I didn't know who I was going to meet with, you know, I thought I was going to meet with the dude that I reached out with, uh, reached out to, you know, like the dude that, yeah, the front desk lady comes up to me and goes, oh yeah, the creative director's ready to see you. And lo and behold, the dude that I had the line prepared for, it comes walking down the hall. It just so happens. Like he comes walking down the hall and I'm like, oh my God, here we go. You know, it's showtime. Like, wow, this is crazy. Like I kind of brought this into existence. Like I kind of thought it was positive, you know, like in the moment I was like, yeah, this is, wow, this is all happening for me. You know, I get up to him and he, you know, he puts out his hand. Hey, you know, hey, you know, he introduces himself. And I, the first thing I say is I reach out my hand. I go, hey man, man, you play a great asshole. And I shook his head and he, he literally like stopped and just looked at me like with, with like, like his eyes were full of big and he like, like froze mid shake, you know, like the shake, our shake froze for a second. And he just was just like, all right. Yeah. Right. He like didn't laugh at all. And he was like, right. Yeah. Oh, uh, right this way. Turned around, like walked away towards it. And I was just like, I, I literally could, I could have left right there. The interview was over with. It was done. Like our rapport was shot. He did not like me after that. And that's another example of being a fugazi. I tried too hard right there. You know what I mean? Like I went outside of myself to try to impress this person. And I just, it was too much. It was too much. I failed. So like what I learned was that you can't joke around with like a stranger. 
basically. You can't joke around like that with a, with a stranger. Who knows what he could have gone through that day. He was probably stressed out about some other stuff going on at work. Who knows? But I caught him at the wrong time and I said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And still to this day, like that agency, I feel like I'm like low-key blackballed for that agency. It's probably just my like insecurity to be like, I'm probably just thinking that. But that was a firm lesson and just like, just be myself and don't try to do too much. And definitely don't try to like come up with this like edgy joke because you don't really know who you're dealing with yet. I didn't know him well enough to do that. So that was my big mistake. Yeah, dog, you'll, you'll never hear from that agency <laughs> the rest of your career. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> I love that story so much, but I think you summed it up best, dog, is don't try to do too much. Right? You get into these interviews, make some small talk, hop in the room, be yourself. Be yourself. All right. Next segment, we're going to talk about being unhirable. So this is our unhirable segment where we touch on imposter imposter syndrome. So first question, Boomer, is, you know, what are your thoughts on imposter syndrome? And a second part of this is like, have you ever suffered from it professionally? Absolutely. What I learned about imposter syndrome, or I guess my perspective on imposter syndrome, I guess what broke me free from imposter syndrome, like feeling I'm not good enough, feeling like I don't know what I'm talking about, feeling like that, like, I learned that there's four steps to learning, like there's four steps to mastery. And the first two steps, you are an imposter. (laughs) You're a fucking imposter. You don't know shit yet. You know, you don't know what you're talking about yet. You don't know what's going on yet. The first two steps to, or the first two steps, the first step, let me just go through the four. If you don't mind, I'm gonna go through the four. So the first step is you are unconsciously incompetent. This is where you don't even know the questions to ask. You don't know what you don't know. That's like the saying. You don't know what you don't know. So unconsciously incompetent. Let's just use piano as an example. So you walk up to a piano. You have no idea what the notes are. You have no idea anything about it. Nothing about it. And you're like, dang, that's, that's looking crazy. So if you sit down at the piano at that moment, you're an imposter. Right now, you're, you're an imposter. Okay. So let's just say you got a teacher, you learn the notes, you learn a couple little scales here and there, and you start to get kind of okay at it. Like you can play a little song, you play a little tune. That's the second step. Now you're consciously incompetent. Now you're like, oh, okay. Like I see what I need to learn now. Like I'm doing it a little bit. Oh, okay. So this does this, this does that. Okay. I see what I need to like learn still. I'm not good at it yet. I'm not very good at it yet at all. I'm still an imposter. But now I'm like, okay, I at least know what I need to learn. The third step is when you're consciously competent. This is when you're like, okay, now I could play a full song. Actually, I could play it pretty well. Actually, it sounds, it's actually sounding pretty good. I'm, I'm sounding like a, a damn piano player now. Here I go. But the difference is you're conscious about it. You're consciously competent. You have to think about it. I have to think about every single little note that my finger moves down and make sure that I hit this and then hit this real quick. And like, I'm thinking about everything that I'm doing. And then the fourth step is mastery, which is unconsciously competent. And this is where you just, you don't even have to look at the, you don't even have to look at the keyboard no more. You just play a song like a savant. So back to the imposter syndrome, like I learned that I was an imposter and that's okay. Everybody is when you start out, that's okay. And how you get out of being an imposter is you got to learn, you got to expose yourself to more stuff. For me, it was, I needed to expose myself to better advertising. I need to expose myself to award-winning ads in order for me to be an award-winning creative. I needed to see how other people do it. I needed to study. I needed to talk to people. Like I needed to talk to mentors. I needed to understand how to think. 
So it was just all around exposure that really broke me free from feeling like I'm an imposter. That last part that you're talking about of when you got stuff down and you have it down and you, you know how to play the piano and it's just flowing reminds me of like Michael Jordan at the free throw line, closing his eyes and hitting the jump shot. He got to a point in basketball where it's like, this is secondhand nature to me. Yeah. Earlier in his life, he was trash. He got cut from the team and, you know, he was he was teetering. He wasn't as good as he was, but he got to that point where he'd practice it and exposed himself and researched and looked at people to the point where now he's in a game where tension is heightened and he's in the free throw with his eyes closed. That's it. That's it. That's when you can do it in your sleep. Tell us about a time in your career where you may have made a mistake that you feel limited your upward mobility. Well, it had to have been in my first job. And I'm sure this could be an answer to another question that might come later, but I'm going to say it for this and we'll see what I say later. My first job and my first job, I was working on a campaign for a big protein drink. I shouldn't say brands because I shouldn't give like the info, insider info, but I was working on a big protein brand and they wanted a new tagline at the time. I had just got hired after my internship. I did three months internship. Then I got hired as like a junior copywriter. So I was freshly in the business, first starting out, very much an imposter still, but I was good. I had a talent though. I had a talent. I had a knack for this, like especially taglines, especially like short, brief taglines, like quotes, like goat quotes, for example. We were trying to come up with this new tagline and I had come up with one of the taglines, one of the three taglines that we were, we were going to go back to the client. We were going to present these three different taglines and I had written one of them. So suddenly I was in rooms that I had no business being in as a junior copywriter. Like I was, I was in the rooms with like the chief creative officer and like the VPs and all that. And they were like discussing like which taglines they were going to bring in. And, you know, they were uh, criticizing the manifestos and it was just like, it was really cool to be in that room, but really I had no business being in that room. The only reason I was there is because I happened to write this tagline called Stronger Every Day, which actually became the tagline for this protein drink. You can look at it on my website for muscle milk. I can say that. So in the meeting, I was sitting on the floor, first of all. So just visually like just understand like I really felt like an imposter there was, and there were seats at the table by the way but I sat on the floor like my little laptop on my lap and I was cross-legged on the floor because I really didn't even feel worthy of sitting at the table that was how much of an imposter I felt like I was you know I had been working on this I'd been working on this campaign so there was another tagline that I had in my back pocket that I really actually liked I personally really liked it but over the course of working on it I leaned over to my desk mate who was like another creative director in the office. He was working on a different project. I was like, hey, what do you think about this tagline? He was like, ah, it's all right. And then I like just threw it in the trash because I was an imposter. And if I heard that kind of feedback from someone above me, I was like, oh, okay, got it. It must be trash, you know? So I never like brought it up again. But like we're, I was in this meeting that I shouldn't have been in. They had a moment where they had these two taglines and they wanted to come in with three. And they were like, man, if we only had a tagline, man, if we only had a tagline that didn't have the word strength in it or stronger, man, gosh, that, ah, maybe we should go and, you know, maybe we should, you know, do a little bit of research on this or something like, and then there was silence in the room for like a good, like five seconds. And I'm sitting there with the tagline. In my, I'm like, I got it. I got the line. I got the solution to this. Like, I know it's good. And so I mustered up the courage from the floor to say something in that moment. And I was, and what I said, this is exactly what I said. I said, well, do we hate the idea of what are you made of? 
everyone like kind of was shocked that I even said anything, first of all. But as soon as I had said that, and as soon as like the silence kind of take the air out the room, the chief creative officer, the, the guy, the founder of the company, the chief creative, the guy I want to impress, basically, he started busting up laughing, just busting up laughing at me. <laughs> He's like, ah, yeah, well, if you're going to say it like that, yeah, if you're going to pitch it like that, I fucking hate it. Yeah, I hate it. Yeah, I absolutely hate that line. Yes, we all hate it. Yeah, if you're going to pitch it like that, I hate it. That was that. And literally like, oh my God, I could have just crawled into a hole and died right there. Like, I was so embarrassed. I thought my career was over. I thought I was going to get fired. It was tough. Uh, and but, but But I learned the lesson to take from that is it's not so much. The, the tagline was good. I still think the tagline was good. So it wasn't the tagline. It was the way that I said it. It was the way that I presented it. So I, that was when I learned like your approach and your pre presentation is almost more important than the actual content itself. Follow up to that. What was going on in your head when the person that you wanted to be, the boss in the room starts laughing in the whole room and, and just laughing at your idea? What were the thoughts that were going through your head? And like, were you like visibly sweating? Did you want to like, want to run out of the room? Tell us about that. Yeah. My first thought was, shit, I am an imposter. That was confirmation that I am an imposter. I don't know what I'm talking about. That was my first thought. I was like, God dang it. Like I screwed that up. Now here I am. Now all these, all these people that I want to impress think I'm, think I'm like dumb, like, and think like, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I might as well quit before they fire me. Like that's, that's what I felt like. I was like, dang, like. After that, I really did feel like I was going to get fired. I didn't really know how the business worked. That was my first job. I was four or five months in. Like, I was going to get, I thought I was going to get the axe. Like, I just, I, like I said, like, I literally wanted to hide in a dark hole until everyone forgot about what had just happened. What was the rebuilding process like? So, that happens at work. You go home. I'm sure you're probably still thinking about it. Like, damn, I really effed it up today. What was the re rebuilding process for you to get your confidence back and continue your career in the field? I got to harken back to what I learned from my sports, from my sports background. You're going to miss a goal. Like I played soccer. Like you're going to miss a shot every now and then that you should have made. You know, you're going to miss that PK that would have won the game. Like you're, it's going it, to, it's bound to happen in sports. Like failure is a part of sports. Like that's like as athletes like Jono you know I know Dave you know too like athletes like you miss more shots than you make usually you know and in, in most sports what a baseball at 30% is like you're killing it <laughs> you know what I mean like stuff like that so anyway I literally just like told myself I gotta pick myself back up I gotta pick myself back up by my shoulders and just come in with my shoulders back and honestly just just come back stronger from it like at, let, let me go let me go cry about it let me go yep yep let me go let me go let me go get it out of my system let me go have a, a whiskey and let me like let me yell about it or whatever I got to do right I don't I can't remember how I handled it to be honest with you but I, I did go home and I did you know get it out somehow I can't remember how but somehow and I remember the next day though I was like that's not going to define me that's not going to define me. what's going to define me is my comeback story that's what's going to define me and that's what shows the marrow of my bones is how, how do I handle this now? You know, that's, what's going to be the story. That's the narrative that I want people to remember, not just a failure, but now how does he respond? And that's what I wanted to be like, okay, this fool messed up really big. And what did he do after? Oh, sh okay. He rose, he rose even higher to the occasion. So that was it. 
I'd love that boom. I think the only thing to add, just to piggyback off of that, I think for me as an athlete, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is just have a short-term memory. Literally, like you'll fail, you'll get knocked down, like whatever, whatever that mistake is, you might sulk on it for a second, right? A day or so, and then you move on, right? And it's all about moving forward and it's all about making new mistakes. And I think that's the the biggest thing. And as a coach, I, I still coach baseball, but as a coach, that's my biggest pet peeve is people making new mistakes, right? Go out there, experience, live, learn, make a mistake and just learn from it. Move on. Again, just having a short-term memory is so important. I remember uh, in college or in, uh, in high school, my soccer coach told me he was the head coach or he actually was assistant coach at Santa Clara University, really good soccer school, division one, everything else. And I remember he told me and he told all of my teammates, like the recruiters that came and watched our games in high school, like the college recruiters that would come or even professionals, uh, recruiters that would come and watch our games. What they're looking for really is like, how do we play when we're losing? They're more interested in how we play when we're lo- when we're down. What do we do when we're down? Because you're gonna get down. You like that's gonna happen in sports. You're not gonna be winning every game, or you're not gonna be, you know, you're not gonna have the lead in every moment of every game. What do you do when you're down? Next question is gonna require some more vulnerability. Um, even though you've been really vulnerable with this thus far, have you ever been fired or laid off from a job? And if so, what'd you learn from that experience? Yes, I have my first job unfortunately i was there my first job i was there for almost two years the agency i was at we lost a lost a big client you know that was one of the big clients that were keeping the lights on in the the office and in the agency world like when you lose a big client like that then you got to make changes to your workforce it was me and it was someone else actually that got they and it was a pretty small agency there was only like i think there were only like 25 of us in the agency total so we lost a big client and then they, it made sense to, to lay me off. I didn't get fired, thankfully, like there was no fireable offense or something, but I did get laid off and it was because I was the most junior creative in the whole agency. And because I learned accountability and responsibility early on, like we talked about earlier, I took that really, really hard. I took it, I took it like I got fired. Like I, like I, I did something wrong and I got let go because of those reasons when I did look in the mirror, one of the things that I learned was just like, I was on Facebook a lot during work. I'm going to be honest. Like I'll be flipping through videos. Like I'll be on my newsfeed. Like, and I felt like I felt at the time, like it started with the right intention because I wanted to know what's as a creative, I got to know what's going on right now. Like I got to know what's happening in the world. I got to know what we can draft off of like, okay, what can muscle milk borrow that's going on on, you know, off Twitter or whatever on on Facebook, you know, social media in general. What's the funny videos out right now? What's the you know? Is it the what's the next like ice bucket challenge? Like that 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 type of stuff. Like the crate challenge, right? Like just like the viral stuff that's going on on the internet. I gotta speak internet language, you know. So I kind of took that too far. I feel like because I feel like all the time I would have Facebook on my damn screen, and I sat in such a way where anybody who walked by, like the agency, pretty much like would see my screen. You know, my screen was like positioned to everybody. So I felt like anyway, like I could have, maybe that wasn't it, but I did feel like if I were to say that anything I could do differently, it was that. I've never had Facebook on my screen at work ever, not not one time ever since. I've never gone on Facebook in another job after that. Smart man. Yeah. What about Instagram though? My phone is in my lap, so that's fair game. (laughs) On my screen, 
was being displayed to the world of the office. Wow, that shit is going to be a word wow. or a deck. That's what's going to be. Up. Next subject. Everybody knows the subject, but just give you context. Cheap mistakes versus costly mistakes. And you think about costly mistakes, they're things that cost you time, money, energy, opportunity, pride, or even all of the above. And then cheap mistakes, those mistakes that you learned secondhand from somebody else. It doesn't cost you anything. So if you can, tell me what's the most costly mistake you've made in your professional career? Oh, man, that's a tough question. Well, again, okay, let me reinterpret the question that's coming in. So like when I think costly, I think negative outcome. But I'll say I'll just kind of reinterpret the question for myself and say, like, what's the what's the mistake that led to like the biggest difference, like the most influential mistake? Correct. Is that yeah. accurate? To yeah. Is that fair yeah. to say? OK, so the most costly or influential mistake I would say that I've made was it was a very small mistake, but it had lasting effects for me. I think it's also fair to say that the management didn't handle this the best way possible, especially now that I'm in like a true corporate setting. I'm like, wow, that would never fly how the manager held it. But anyway, what I learned was I got to go through the proper channels with writing copy. So what happened was I changed the wording in a script without my boss's approval and sent it back to the client as if my boss had approved it because it was late or whatever. It was like with tight deadline, whatever circumstances. And the account manager, by the way, was like, yeah, we, you know, they, you don't need to have him approve it. Like we trust you. You know, I knew in the back of my head that I work for a very old school advertising creative. And this person is going to want to approve everything that comes out of the, uh, the four walls of this place, you know, because because that person's name is on all the work that comes out. Not necessarily mine. It's more like it's his ass that's on the line, you know. So if he doesn't agree with something in the script, like that's a big problem. So anyway, so what happened was, <laughs> what happened was I changed something in the script, gave it back to the account person, didn't think anything of it, came in the next day, the next morning, sat down at my desk, and all of a sudden I hear from across the agency, Boomer, like yelling at me. Like I could just hear his, uh, like I could just hear him up in arms, my boss. And he was like the founder, chief creative officer of that agency I was working at. He comes over to my desk with the script printed out. He had it like circled, like the stuff that I had changed. And he comes up to me into my desk and everyone's at the agency is watching, by the way, everyone, like everyone like turned around like, oh shit. Cause he's yelling. He's like literally yelling. And he's like, why has this changed? Like who told you to change this? You know? And I was like, I'm a mid-level copywriter. I'm not a manager. I'm not, I don't, I'm still kind of feeling like an imposter a little bit too, mind you, like at this time in my career. But my athlete brain kicks on, you know, like my, my battlefield brain kicks on. I can't get emotional about it. I can't, I just got to answer and I just got to like, I got to just like stay, stay emotionless about it. I can't feel anything about it yet. I got to like go in shock and just like deal with it. So he's yelling at me and I'm like, oh, the client had feedback and, and you weren't here last night. And like, before I could finish my sentence, he goes, fuck the client, fuck the client. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Yes, sir. All right. Okay. No problem. Yeah, you're right. And he's just like, you got it. You know, like he just like reamed me. Like you got it. You got to make, you know, I got to approve everything. You just sent this out. Like you got to go through the proper channels. Like that's what he, proper channels, you know? And so after that, like he got over it, but like it would come up every now and then he would look at me and he'd go proper channels, you know? And it was like a repeating thing now. It's like, I couldn't really shake it, you know? And even like, I remember <laughs> even at the Christmas party, 
the Christmas party, like in a whole different setting. We weren't talking about work. <laughs> and he met my, at the time, my girlfriend. He met my girlfriend at the time. And the first thing that he said to her was, he goes, hey, yeah, oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, Boomer's a great guy, you know, proper channels. <laughs> Literally, like I couldn't, I couldn't, he couldn't get over it. It was that big of a deal to him. So that was like a very small mistake, but it ended up like, it ended up just being like this like low key thing that he had to watch me for moving forward. So I take that to heart. Like I always make sure my boss or whoever's my manager is always seeing my work and like I'll bend over backwards to make sure that they see it. Like, you know, even when they didn't ask for it, I make sure that they saw it just because that kind of traumatized me to be honest. So that kind of whipped me in shape. I know what Dave's about to say about this, but you know, that's what happened. <laughs> Yeah, it couldn't be me. Kudos to you, man. Kudos to you, Boomer. I, it c- couldn't be me. I couldn't have him standing in my face, spitting in my face, and yelling my name across and embarrassing me in front of the entirety of the, of the company. But kudos to you because that's that's the the best way you could have handled that in that situation is to get emotionless and just respond accordingly. But yeah, couldn't be me. Part of the reason why I left the agency world, I might go back. Who knows? I'm not, you know, I'm not saying don't, don't throw it out, but there's a lot of that. There's a lot of the toxic culture in the agency. There's some leftover legacy creatives from 20, 30 years ago that really just had a different culture and different way of doing things. And that right there, that example was quite common, you know, in the uh, in the historic advertising agency life. So, boom on a cheap mistake. And that is, that's a secondhand mistake that you got to learn vicariously through a coworker, a peer, a sibling, a friend, whatever it is, but best cheap mistake that you learn from. You know, I'm going to use myself as an example, actually. A cheap mistake that I did that I'm glad that it wasn't a bigger deal than it could have been, I think. Like what happened was I didn't copy my partner on an email. Like that was the mistake that I made. I think I made it a few times because my partner brought it up to me and she was a, she was a woman and you know I had a good relationship with the chief creative officer of the company so like you know we kind of and I think like low key what I didn't want to appear as is like we had like this bro relationship and then like she was on that the periphery of that you know she was outside of that the cheap mistake was I didn't copy her on an email like I sent him a script or something and I just didn't I didn't copy her like that was it like she knew what was going on I told her I was going to email him but she wasn't on the email thread. So she didn't get his feedback. She wasn't in on like the conversation. Like, and I just, that was a cheap mistake that like, I'm glad that she took it really well. She called me out on it though. She did bring it up to me. She was like, Hey, you really, I know it's not a big deal, but like, you really do need to like copy me on that kind of stuff just so that I'm, I'm in the loop. And like, just so I feel I'm feeling a part of this project and like, cause I am, you know, and like we're partners and like, I just want to be treated like that. So that was like a cheap mistake, but it was, it's definitely something that I think about to this day where I'm just like, I want everyone to feel included, particularly my partner. So that's what I would say to that. Boom. Next section for you. We got a section called regrettable and unregrettable mistakes, which if I know you as well as I I think I do, you might disagree with this, right? And and say that there's no mistakes that you necessarily regret. So instead, uh, I'll switch up the question. And if you can, tell me about a professional mistake that, mistake that you've made that you know that you'll never make again, right? If you're in that situation a hundred times, you won't fall into that same trap once. Yeah, I got you. So I will never over-promise and under-deliver ever again, 
period. Like I will never do that again. And like early on in my career, here we go. Imposter syndrome was, was, was alive and well in my head. It was my first job. My manager at the time, like asked me and my partner to come up with some ideas for this like project we were doing with Steph Curry. Actually, he had just won the MVP and like we wanted to do something cool for it, whatever. And it was like on a Friday, late on Friday, we like heard the news and we like needed ideas by Monday basically to present back to the client because it was like a timely thing. We needed to like hurry up and do it. I remember I promised that I was going to come up with like 10 ideas or something. I don't know why I, he didn't say a number. I said the number. I don't like, I was trying to impress him. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, well, I'll come up with 10. I got, I got you for 10, you know? And I didn't plan enough time over the weekend for me to come up with 10 fresh new award-winning ideas. You know, I just didn't, I, I didn't like commit to the time. Like I wasn't ready to commit the time that it takes to come up with 10 dope ideas that are like, that are really fun, that are, it could make a buzz in the press and like that's hard to do like it's hard to come up with so especially early on you know so i ended up coming up with like two or three which was still i mean like which was good like which was good for just a weekend of work like i came up with three really good ideas but because i set the expectation too high my boss was like well, where's the other seven you know like this is fine great you did three cool but like but you said that you were gonna do 10 and so right then and there I failed because I didn't, I failed to hit my own bar that I set for myself. So that's what I'll never do again. I'll never overpromise and underdeliver. I'll always do the opposite. I'll always say I'm going to do two and then I'm going to come back with four or five. I think that's the way that you like move up in your career. And like, that's the way that you stay in good graces with the management. That's the way that you always look like you're going above and beyond. When you're given the ability to set the bar, I set it low as possible. That's so important. I learned, you know, similar lesson. I'd say kind of midway through my career, probably a little bit later than I should have trying to promise too much. Right. And I think that came from, you know, one of your earlier lessons of just like not thinking enough of yourself. Right. And so you kind of got to inflate, you know, what you can do, make it seem like you're bigger, better, better than you are. And all that leads to is disappointment. And so, you know, obviously from then on made a point to undersell over deliver as much as possible on the flip side of that boom. So tell me about a, a, a mistake that you don't regret. It was just, it was such a great experience, such a great lesson learned. It was absolutely worth it. Gosh, this one's hard because I don't regret any of my mistakes. That's why this one's really hard. You know, gosh, I really got to think about this one. I mean, I, I don't, I really, I truly don't regret as horrible as it was like when the, the, when I pitched the idea and it completely fell on its face and I just didn't pitch it right. Like, that was probably the most important lesson that I've gotten in my career for real. Like that was the, that day I learned more than I have probably in like four years. The way that I look at stuff like that is I look at it as on like the conceptual level. Like this isn't just about presenting copy to a creative director. Like this is like how you, how you say things is so much more important than what you're saying. And actually, you know, I kind of was curious about this. Like I looked it up and like, Communication, they say, is 9% what you say. And it's like, and then it's like 25% your tone, voice and tone. And then the rest of it, like 35% or whatever, is your body language. So, really, 90% is nonverbal, is not what you're saying, the actual content of what you're saying. So, like, I think about that when I'm dealing with friends. Like, I'm, I'm, I think about that when I'm talking to my parents. I think about that when I'm talking to my brother. And I want to, and I, I want to have a suggestion from, I kind of want to sell him on something. Like I want to, I have a piece of advice that he might benefit from. It's all in how you say it. 
it's all in how you say it really like it's almost entirely how you say it really so that's the one that like I probably would take back a few of the other ones just because like it just was rough after that you know like uh, especially like the proper channels thing I didn't I didn't like that name to be pigeonholed in like someone that doesn't follow proper channels for instance like it actually kind of led to me like leaving because I felt like I couldn't really get my reputation fully back to where it was you know that one the presentation faux pas was like probably the thing that I learned so much from it that I couldn't possibly take that one back all right we are going to go into the bonus round but bonus round John and I are going to ask you a few like quick, quick, random off the wall questions and just need some, some quick responses. And then we're going to wrap up. First question is what's your definition of Fugazi? We've said Fugazi a couple of different times during the podcast today. Everyone has a different definition for it. So curious to know yours. Fugazi is just, you know, making yourself appear bigger than you are. Making yourself appear like something you are not. And I think specifically a fugazi is appearing like something that you think other people are going to think is really cool, but you're not actually that, period. Solid. Signed and signed and certified. That's that's Boomer Cruz's definition of fugazi. Second question is, where'd you learn from being on this podcast? Man, you know, I learned that I've actually learned everything that I know is through mistakes that I've made. Everything. I can't think of something that like I just I've always won at one at quote unquote one at like I, I've really only learned how to be good at stuff through failing over and 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 over again for real. And like talking about these mistakes, like I'm kind of having like a moment of self-reflection right now with just the stuff that we talked about in this podcast, like those instances in my life are the things that really shaped me and who I am today. I wouldn't be the same person if I had not gone through those mistakes, like if I didn't have those failures. And so, you know, I love just the idea of failing, failing forward is just so true. And it's like the truest thing ever. I mean, I said in the beginning, I'll say it again, like at the edge of your comfort zone is growth and probably failure because it's something that you never done before. And so that's what I've taken from this podcast. Like I've learned so much from my failures. It's ridiculous. I can't even tell you what I learned from my wins. Cause that's just like what you do. Like there's, it, that's an unconscious thing. When you fail, you have to become conscious. Like, Oh shit, there's something I don't know and I need to learn it. So that's what this podcast has taught me. And I appreciate you guys bringing, bringing this all out of me too, because this is important, important to reflect, self-reflect on. Yeah. We appreciate the vulnerability. Boom. Another question for you for the listeners out there that aren't familiar with the skill set of a copywriter. What is a copywriter? What do you do? Let me put it simply. I write words with the intention to sell. That's what I do. That's what a copywriter does. Every word that I write has the intent behind it to sell you on something, to sell someone on something, whether it's selling an idea, selling a product, service, whatever it is. Even if it's a piece of entertainment or if it's like a more like heady piece, like where it talks about a philosophy or something, I'm trying to sell a perspective. I'm trying to sell a voice and tone. I'm trying to sell, I'm trying to position a company in such a way with my word choice. And I say my, cause I'm a copywriter, but any copywriter's word choice and any copywriter's creative vision, I'll say. So words with the intent to sell. And also I'll say too, like, you know, I've also defined a copywriter as an actor with words, cause that's kind of what it ends up being too. 
Next section, boom. We like to give our guests the opportunity to give shout outs to people, to businesses, mentors, whoever it might be. Who would you like to shout out? I'd like to shout out my mom and I'd like to shout out my dad. And the reason is not just because they're my mom and my dad. My mom, because she always just kept it so lit with me growing up. Like she just was so honest with me. And like, just like the, I learned accountability. I learned accountability. That's I think the main thing that I've, I've learned from my mom, but also too, like life should be fun. Like my mom finds a way to make everything fun or funny. Like she always finds the humor in, in damn near everything that she does. I mean, even if <laughs> this is kind of morbid warning, but like when my grandpa passed away, when her dad passed away and when her mom passed away, like my mom is a award-winning writer herself and she taught me how to write. She taught me how to write growing up. And really it was, she taught me how to write through speeches. We do like, you know, you had to do class speeches for different stuff, for books or whatever, or whatever. And my speeches were always so good because my mom was helping me tell the story and like lay out the story correctly. And anyway, my mom, <laughs> she would write a speech essentially for an obituary at my, her dad and her mom's funerals. And like, it was freaking, I mean, it was, it was a roller coaster of emotions. Like she would give a, you know, she would, it would be sentimental. She would choke up on certain points, but then she would like, and then it would turn into like a comedy routine, like a roast. <laughs> of like her mom and dad and like and like I saw what humor does to a room like especially a, a room where everyone's grieving and everyone just like is almost like at the at a very very lowest at the lowest point some people in that room you know and everybody walked up to her after and just thank like crying like so grateful that they that they were able to laugh about them about their lives like humor is so powerful in that sense so I appreciate my mom for teaching me accountability and humor and then my dad, my dad is very much, gosh, I learned so much from my dad, it's hard to place it. But I'll say the one tangible thing that I could say from my dad, when I graduated from college, I didn't have a job right away. I won some student awards, so I, I kind of thought like jobs were going to come find me, but they didn't. That's not how it worked. <laughs> so I had to move home and I moved home for about five months. I was living at home looking for a job like applying for different things on, you know, applying for different jobs like on LinkedIn or like job portals. But like, I was just throwing my name in the hat with like 300 people and I didn't really have any like valor to my name. So I kind of, I kind of knew that wasn't the right route. So what my dad made me do, he said, okay, look, you don't got any money. You know, I worked at Nike town at the time. I wasn't making, I was making enough money to like buy like McDonald's. So he was like, all right, you don't have any money. So you can't pay me rent. I know this, but you're not going to be living at home forever. You know, like you're going to be, you got to get into your industry that you studied for. So what I need you to do, your rent to me is going to be, you're going to reach out to 10 people in your industry every day. You're going to copy me on the email, blind, blind carbon copy me on the emails so that I know you're doing it. That's your rent to me. So every single day, you're going to build your network by 10. So you should get a job pretty quick here if you follow that cadence. And I did. And that's how I broke into the, that's how I broke into the agency world. I'm forever grateful for his, like, I don't even know what to call it. I don't even know what to call it, but it's like his never, never give up like personality, like rubs off on me where it's like, it's just like, if you want something, you just make it happen. Period. The end. Like there's not much else to it. You know, my dad's a very like stern man. Doesn't say a whole lot. Like when I was growing up with him, 
we didn't have a great relationship because he was very, very strict, you know, and I, I didn't know why. My dad's the type of dude where, you know, like the cords behind the TV and all that, or sometimes get jumbled up and all that. Like my dad, yeah. like all the drawers and all that, like they'd be neat and clean and everything would be in that. And I'd be like, dad, why do you care about that? Like, why do you care that my sock drawer is messy? My drawer, like the inside, like no one's even going to see that but me. Like, it's just for me. It's just for my underwear and socks. Like, why does it matter that they're all folded and that the socks are on one side? And, the and he never said this, but I deduced this over the years. How you do anything is how you do everything. Period. Period. Mm. So if you got your drawers all messed up, then you're going to take that same level of not focusing on the details into, into your job and into your friendships and into your relationships and into whatever. Right. When you build a shed or what, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, you're going to take that same way of doing things and you're going to apply it to everything else that you do. So thank you, Dad. And shout out to Pops for charging you the most valuable and most meaningful rent. And shout out to Moms for helping you become a wordsmith. To wrap things up, Boom, I really want to thank you for having the courage and humility to come on the show. Obviously, it takes a lot of vulnerability to talk about mistakes, to talk about failures. But the goal is to normalize it, dog, because we all fail. We fail more than we succeed. And so it's so important to share these lessons with as many people as you can. So thank you, man. We're honored to have you as a guest. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again. Like this is, I mean, like we're talking about like the most important moments of my life. Really. I mean, because the failures, I do feel like you just, you learn and you learn so much and it, it really, it doesn't define you, but it starts to create you moving forward because it's such powerful lessons. Like they're such powerful lessons. And like I said, like the, big, the bigger the L, like the bigger the lesson, like the L's that we talked about today were the biggest lessons in my life and really, really like changed the direction of, of my life pretty greatly. So I appreciate you guys for having me on this show. And I appreciate you guys for doing this podcast at all, because I can only imagine the stories that are going to start to pile up and really the L's and or the lessons that are going to pile up from this podcast. So that's going to be potent information for anybody listening to this. And hopefully they don't have to make these mistakes because they can learn from vicariously through others, like such as myself. And you know they can get it right without having to go through it firsthand. Amen to that. Thank you so much, Boomer. We appreciate you. Thank you for spending time. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mostly Mistakes. We out. Peace.